Happy Thanksgiving, and welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, November 24th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. The EU designates Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. The Supreme Court rules that Trump's tax returns will be released. The gunman who killed six at a Virginia Walmart is among the dead. Canada's Trudeau will testify about his controversial use of the Emergencies Act. Twin Jerusalem blasts kill one and injure many. Ukraine claims that Russia has struck a maternity ward and killed a newborn. iPhone factory protests erupt in China. The UK Supreme Court vetoes Scotland's independence referendum. Brazil's Bolsonaro challenges his election loss. Alabama's governor suspends executions. And Biden extends his student loan repayment pause. In our first story, the European Union has designated that Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Euronews, Reuters, Al Jazeera, Politico, and Brussels Times. In a vote of 494 to 58, with 44 abstentions, The European Parliament on Wednesday approved a resolution declaring Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, citing alleged brutal and inhumane acts inflicted upon Ukraine and its citizens. The vote is mainly symbolic, as the EU doesn't have legal enforcement mechanisms to back it up, though it has already imposed unprecedented sanctions on Moscow. According to the resolution, Quote, the deliberate attacks and atrocities carried out by the Russian Federation against the civilian population of Ukraine, the destruction of civilian infrastructure and other serious violations of human rights and international humanitarian law amount to acts of terror. The resolution called for developing the legal frameworks needed to enforce its declaration, stripping Russia of its membership in international organizations, reducing diplomatic ties to the bare minimum, and issuing a ninth sanctions package. NATO and the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe have already adopted similar non-binding resolutions, along with individual states Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and the Czech Republic. Meanwhile, the U.S., which has anti-terrorism enforcement powers, has yet to adopt such a resolution. Thank you, Adam, for laying out the facts. And on this show, we separate the facts from the narrative spins. We've got four narrative spins here, starting with a pro-Russia narrative from RT. Even the anti-Russia U.S. State Department understands the bogus nature of this declaration. Though the U.S. has assisted Ukraine immensely in this fight against Russia, it's smart enough to steer clear of any terrorist declarations that would risk bringing its armed forces into the fight. This is just another cowardly attempt by Western states to justify their coercive measures against Russia. And Washington Examiner is providing us with an anti-Russia narrative spin. Russian tactics are clearly aimed at spreading maximum terror. While some minor states and international governing bodies have already formally recognized this, it's time for the leading Western powers, particularly the EU and U.S., to follow suit. This resolution is a good first step that will enable even more severe economic sanctions, as well as for Russian war criminals to be tried in the international court. Putin is only pressing harder, and it's time the entirety of the West match his efforts. 
The establishment critical narrative comes from Amnesty International. While the horrors of Russian war crimes must not be minimized, Ukraine isn't free of blame either. In addition to facing their own allegations of war crimes against Russian soldiers and prisoners of war, Amnesty International has documented numerous instances of Ukrainian forces deploying fighting tactics that endanger civilians in violation of international humanitarian law, including by establishing bases in and operating weapon systems from hospitals and schools. All sides must be held accountable for their actions. And occasionally we're provided with statistical-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. And we have one here that says there's a 15% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before 2024. Maybe they'll get one for Christmas this year. That's not too late. Poland's wrapping up a nice little... What do you think is in this package, Ukraine? It's a horse. No, it's a security guarantee. Oh, I have one thing, security guarantee. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. In our next story, Trump's taxes will be released to Congress. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Fox News, Forbes, The Daily Wire, and CNN. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court denied former President Donald Trump's attempt to block a lower court's ruling that allowed the U.S. House Ways and Means Committee to access his tax returns. The Democrat-led committee first requested six years of Trump's tax returns in 2019. This latest ruling comes after Chief Justice John Roberts recently issued a temporary stay to block Trump from having to turn over the documents. Trump has claimed that the committee seeks to release the returns to the public and doesn't have a legitimate legislative reason behind its request. Meanwhile, the committee says it wants to see Trump's returns to determine if tax law should be changed when it pertains to a president. It now has a short time to access and review the documents before the Republicans take the majority of the House in January. While it's unknown when the documents will be received, Representative Lloyd Doggett, a committee member, said it hopes to get the returns as soon as next week. Thank you, Melissa. CNN has provided us with a Democratic narrative spin. Trump, who has fought for years to keep his tax returns secret, has been dealt a major loss. Even a Trump-appointed appeals judge and the conservative-leading Supreme Court, with three judges Trump appointed, wouldn't take his side on this matter. What exactly is he hiding? We're about to find out. And there's a pro-Trump narrative coming from the Washington Times. Democrats are still on a baseless mission to find something Trump is hiding in his tax returns. But if the regularly audited Trump had violated any laws, wouldn't the IRS have already prosecuted him? There's no legislative purpose to Congress's request, and Trump is still under no obligation to release his returns. Melissa, what kind of unique things do you think they'll turn up in Trump's tax returns? What kind of things do you think he's been writing off? Oh, that's a juicy question. Um, I think security cameras uh, embedded into lawn flamingos for the Mar-a-Lago <laughs> estate. What do you think he's using those for? Maybe to catch people who are trying to sneak into his pool? Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you can't get into that pool for free. I think he's going to be writing off ketchup. And not just ketchup like the big bottles. Like I think he's got a thing for the little ketchup packets. I think he uses them as like stress ball relievers. He puts them on his desk 
and just pounds them with his fist and just oh, yeah. You know that feeling you get when that tr- when that ketchup just like pff, splurts out like that. It's such a freeing feeling. Oh, yeah. He he buys those by like the case and writes that off. That would be satisfying. I might try that. News from a recent U.S. shooting in Virginia, the gunman who killed six at a Walmart has been identified. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Daily Mail, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Huffington Post. The city of Chesapeake, Virginia, has identified the gunman who shot and killed six people at a local Walmart as Andre Bing. The city added that the 31-year-old store employee, quote, was armed with one handgun and had multiple magazines on his person. There were approximately 50 people inside when Bing entered the employee break room, where he shot 10 people, killing six before taking his own life. It's yet unknown if he owned the gun legally, but police say he was dressed in civilian clothing and was not wearing any protective gear. Bing and two others were found dead in the break room. A fourth was found dead at the front of the Walmart, and three others died at local hospitals. Chesapeake Police Chief Mark Seleski said a SWAT team has also executed a search warrant at Bing's home. Walmart identified the gunman as a team leader, with fellow employee Brianna Tyler telling Good Morning America that, quote, he literally just started shooting throughout the entire break room as colleagues were gathered before starting their night shift. When police searched Bing's body, they found a list of names that colleagues believed to be targets of his attack. Former colleagues have described him as, quote, weird, and said that he was paranoid about the government watching him. Four victims are being treated at local hospitals, but their conditions are unknown. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin has offered to provide additional state resources, with President Joe Biden offering his condolences and saying, we must take greater action on gun violence. Thank you for that sobering story, Adam. The Libertarian Institute provides a right narrative. While tragic, the idea that these shootings are very common in America is false. More Americans die from drowning every year than in mass shootings, but you don't hear about it. Politicians on the left focus on mass shootings to garner political points. More must be done to address the root causes of the violence. Simply curbing the rights of law-abiding gun owners isn't the answer. And the Democratic National Committee is providing us with a left narrative spin. Once again, the utter lack of gun regulation has created a tragedy. No one should have to risk their lives while they shop for the holidays. But too many politicians have accepted this as a way of life. Gun violence can be reduced while also maintaining the rights of gun owners, but more must be done to ensure that guns don't fall into the wrong hands. And there's a nerd narrative on this story from the Metaculous community saying there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 1.38 small firearms per capita in the USA by 2029. Wow, so that's, wait, 1.38, that means. Because I don't own guns. I don't. You don't own any guns, correct? I do not. And I would assume that there's still a, a large part of people that don't own guns. So that means that there's a percentage of people in America that own more than one gun. Enough guns to supply one and almost a half guns for everybody in America. Everybody, young and old. Think of the number of like babies there are. 
Every baby can have one and a half firearm. Well, as a reassuring fact, if there's ever a zombie apocalypse, there's plenty of guns to go around for everybody to kill zombies. Prime Minister Trudeau to testify in Canada's Emergency Act inquiry. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, CTV, CBC, and Global News. Culminating six weeks of public hearings inquiring into the Canadian government's use of the Emergencies Act during the Freedom Convoy protests against COVID measures earlier this year, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will publicly testify in defense of his invocation of the law on Friday. The Emergencies Act, authorized on February 14th, allowed authorities to freeze bank accounts connected to the demonstrations, ban travel to protest zones, and prohibit minors from unlawful assemblies, among others. By law, an inquiry is required after the use of the act. Part of the inquiry involved collecting opinions from Canadians regarding the government's actions. The commission received around 9,500 submissions, with some describing the convoy as a nuisance, while others said the government abused its power. Meanwhile, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service assessed that the blockades didn't meet its definition of a national security threat. In contrast, police have said they received hundreds of reports of abusive behavior by protesters, including harassing people wearing masks, threats and intimidation, and fireworks being set off in residential areas in the middle of the night. The remainder of the investigation will see Trudeau and his ministers defend their decision to invoke the never-before-used law. It could also reveal details surrounding alleged communications between the highest levels of the U.S. and Canadian governments. Thank you, Melissa. We have a couple of spins generating from this story. Security Magazine has provided us with a pro-establishment narrative. The radical far-right mob called themselves the Freedom Convoy to hide their true colors. The anti-vax trucker movement was made up of dangerous conspiracy theorists that posed a clear threat to Canadian safety during an already dangerous pandemic. The government and police responses were completely justified during a time of unprecedented uprising. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the post-millennial. Trudeau was warned by his own intelligence agency that invoking the Emergencies Act would only escalate anti-government sentiment and potentially even violence. While protesters were exercising their rights to oppose extraordinary public health mandates, the government decided to exercise an assault on civil liberties. Labeling all protesters far-right conspiracy theorists is a deliberate distortion of the truth to justify this authoritarian crackdown. Turning our attention to news out of Jerusalem, twin bomb blasts have killed one and injured several. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Times of Israel, Guardian, Haaretz, Reuters, Associated Press, and Al Jazeera. Two bombs went off near bus stations close to Jerusalem entrances during peak commuter hour on Wednesday morning, killing an Israeli-Canadian teenager and injuring about 22 others, including two critically and two seriously. The bombs reportedly contained nails to exert maximum damage and were detonated remotely via mobile phone. Parts of the main road linking Jerusalem and Tel Aviv were temporarily closed as police searched for other explosives, and two crossings into the West Bank were shut. Police began a nationwide manhunt for those responsible, with senior security officials stating that this kind of attack hasn't been seen for years, and stressing the, quote, high quality 
of the explosive charges hidden in bushes behind bus stations. A spokesman for the Gaza-based Palestinian group Hamas lauded the attack, but didn't claim responsibility for the explosions, which resembled the bus bombings seen during the Palestinian uprising of 2000 to 2005. This comes after national elections gave former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu the opportunity to return to office. He is holding coalition talks with right-wing lawmaker Itamar Ben-Gavir, who stated that this incident shows that a tougher stance on Palestinian violence is needed. Tensions between Israelis and Palestinians have been mounting since last year, with incidents of violence claiming the lives of more than 225 people as attacks against Palestinians have increased in parallel with attacks against Israeli citizens. Thank you for the facts on that story, Adam. The pro-Israel spin comes from the Jerusalem Post. This senseless attack is another example of Palestinian terrorism taking innocent Israeli lives. A 16-year-old boy is now dead simply because he was Jewish. The nation's security forces and intelligence agencies, however, won't stop until those responsible are brought to justice. And the pro-Palestine narrative is provided by Middle East Eye. While this is indeed a tragic incident, Israelis who have experienced this disaster are not even close to understanding what Palestinians face every day in the West Bank, where occupation forces have killed over 140 Palestinians so far this year. Israel is not free of blame. And our friends from Metaculus are at it again with a nerd narrative on this story, saying there's a 4% chance that Israel and Palestine will hold peace talks in 2022. So you're saying there's still a chance? There's still a chance. Well, there's four chances. All right. All, <laughs> all right. right. In day 273 of the Ukrainian conflict, Ukraine claims that Russia struck a maternity ward and killed a newborn. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Pravda, The Guardian, and Euronews. According to Zavarycha region head Alexander Staruk, an overnight rocket attack launched by Russia between Tuesday and Wednesday struck a maternity ward in the town of Vilnyansk, killing a newborn baby. Our hearts are overflowing with sorrow. A baby who has just arrived in this world has been killed, he said in comments published on Telegram. Meanwhile, a Russian attack in the city of Kupyansk in the Kharkiv region struck a residential building and an outpatient clinic, killing two civilians and injuring two others, local officials said. In Donetsk, which remains the scene of the heaviest fighting, one civilian was killed and eight others were injured in the last 24 hours, local officials reported. Russian attacks were also reported in the region of Sumy and Dnipropetrovsk, with no additional reports of civilian casualties. Meanwhile, Ukraine launched a renewed drone attack on Crimea late on Tuesday. According to Russian officials, two drones were shot down on approach to the Balaklava thermoelectric power plant, while three others were shot down over the waters of the Black Sea. There were no reports of civilian casualties or damage to infrastructure as a result. Elsewhere, Britain's defense minister Ben Wallace announced that Britain is sending helicopters to Ukraine for the first time. Wallace said three Sea King helicopters would be provided, the first of which is already in the country. The news follows a commitment to provide 1,000 surface-to-air missiles and 125 anti-aircraft guns. 
Finally, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban sparked anger and criticism after he was pictured wearing a scarf that features a historical map of Greater Hungary, the country's former kingdom, which includes modern-day Austria, Croatia, Romania, Serbia, Slovakia, and Ukraine, during Hungary's pre-World Cup friendly game against Greece on Sunday. Ukraine's foreign ministry on Tuesday said it will summon the Hungarian ambassador to Ukraine over the matter. Thank you, Melissa. We've got a few narrative spins on this story. The pro-establishment narrative is provided by PBS NewsHour. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire, even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution after an election a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. And the pro-Russia narrative comes from the National Security Archive. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. And the folks over at Metaculus have got a prediction for us that there's a 16% chance that Ukraine will have de facto control of Sevastopol in Crimea on January 1st, 2024. Meanwhile, somebody wore a scarf that someone didn't like. Did you see what Viktor Orban wore to World Cup? Oh, my God. And in news out of China, protests have erupted at a Zhengzhou iPhone factory. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNBC, San Francisco Chronicle, Financial Times, and the South China Morning Post. On Wednesday... Large-scale protests erupted at Foxconn's iPhone factory in the Chinese city of Zhengzhou. Live streaming footage circulated wildly online, appearing to show hundreds of workers clashing with security personnel, following tensions over COVID restrictions at the plant. The Zhengzhou plant is the world's largest iPhone factory, with approximately 200,000 workers. In mid-October, unconfirmed estimates said around 10% of the workforce had been placed in quarantine on site, driving thousands to flee when the company allegedly failed to address complaints about unsafe working conditions. Protests flared as replacement workers accused Foxconn of changing their contracts, rescinding the higher pay and better benefits promised during recruitment. Foxconn responded that it has always fulfilled allowances based on a contractual obligation. The Zhengzhou factory is under closed-loop management, meaning employees live at their workplace isolated from the outside world. In recent months, Foxconn has struggled to contain a COVID outbreak among its workforce while maintaining production ahead of the peak holiday season. According to Chinese state media, Foxconn has recruited as many as 100,000 people in recent weeks to replace workers that left Zhengzhou. The recent disruptions have increased the demand for manufacturers to diversify their supply chain outside China, where 95% of iPhones are currently produced. Foxconn and other Apple suppliers have already started to shift some production capacity to Vietnam and India. The problems at the plant have led Apple to cut estimates for high-end iPhone 14 shipments and issue a rare warning to investors over production delays. 
Foxconn said the company has always fulfilled its contracts and would continue to communicate and explain that to new staff. It said it would work with employees and the government to prevent further violence. Thank you, Adam, for the facts on that interesting story. The pro-establishment narrative spin comes from the New York Times. China's zero-COVID policy has slowed factory output and quickly turned Apple's close ties with the country from an asset into a liability. While Apple is taking steps to try and slowly extract itself, this is difficult given just how entangled its business is with Beijing. The Chinese government must loosen COVID restrictions if Apple is to recover any of its supply shortages and meet demand. And Truthout is providing us with an establishment critical narrative. The Chinese government's insistence on strict COVID lockdowns should not be used as an excuse by companies like Foxconn and Apple to enact forced labor. Closed-loop management practices are exactly that. Foxconn is choosing to prioritize profit over workers' health and human rights, and Apple refuses to acknowledge the harms committed under its watch. Western consumers have a responsibility to speak out. And there's another nerd narrative on this story saying there's a 50 percent chance that China will officially cease to be a socialist state by March 7, 2086. A U.K. court denies Scotland's independence referendum. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the BBC News, the Herald of Scotland, the Scotsman, the Independent, CNN and The Guardian. On Wednesday, the U.K. Supreme Court unanimously ruled that Scotland cannot hold a second independence referendum next year, known as Ref 2, without the U.K. government's consent. The five-justice panel judging the case argued that a rerun of the process used in the 2014 referendum, approved by Westminster, would be necessary, with temporary powers granted under Section 30 of the 1998 Scotland Act. This comes as the Lord Advocate, the Scottish government's top law officer, asked the court to rule on whether holding a referendum fell within devolved legislative competence. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon had planned to hold a second vote on independence on October 19, 2023. Sturgeon vowed to accept this decision and respect the rule of law, remarking that the Scottish path to independence must be lawful and democratic, but she also declared her will to make the 2024 general election a de facto Ref 2. Opinion polls indicated that Scots remain evenly split on whether to leave the UK, a move that would break a political union with England that dates back to 1707, despite historically rejecting the ruling Conservative Party and heavily voting against Brexit. More than 3.6 million people turned out in 2014 to answer the question, should Scotland be an independent country? with 55.3% voting against it and only four out of 32 council areas supporting independence. Thank you, Melissa. Telegraph has provided us with a narrative A on this story. Although this Supreme Court decision was obvious to anyone who has already read the Scottish Act, or at least Holyrood's website, it could put an end to the Scottish government's squandering of time and taxpayers' money. After years of discussing flags, it's time to focus on real issues, such as health, education, and the economy. And Narrative B comes from the Scotsman. Contrary to the perception that the UK is a voluntary partnership, Scotland is legally prohibited from choosing its own future without Westminster's permission. Scottish nationalists are fighting not only for independence, 
but also for democracy and their right to self-determination. And Narrative C is provided by the Herald of Scotland. Holyrood should have acted as a real parliament by approving IndyRef 2 without requesting approval to implement their democratic mandate, especially not from a court in London. After leading the national movement to a dead end, the Scottish government must now find another way forward. And there's a nerd narrative on this story. There's a 50% chance that the next Scottish independence referendum will be held by October 2026, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Our next story turns its attention to Brazil, where Bolsonaro's party challenges his election loss. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Financial Times, BBC News, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and Associated Press. Brazil's outgoing president, Jair Bolsonaro, and the leader of his right-wing liberal party, or PL, on Tuesday filed a petition with election authorities formally challenging the results of this year's tight presidential runoff vote, which was won by leftist leader Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. PL claims to have found, quote, serious and irremediable inconsistencies in older models of digital ballot boxes as a software bug made it impossible to individually identify voting machines manufactured before 2020, which account for almost 60% of all those used in the poll. They further claim that ballots submitted via these machines would need to be, quote, invalidated, thus giving the victory to Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro, who has long claimed that Brazil's electronic voting system isn't fraud-proof, would reportedly win re-election with 51.05% if the ballots in question were to be annulled. The complaint is unlikely to change the final results and reverse Lula's victory, which has been verified by Brazil's superior electoral court and acknowledged by political figures both in Brazil and abroad. However, this move could encourage Bolsonaro's supporters who have been protesting since his defeat, sparking concerns that this could potentially disrupt a peaceful transition of power. Supreme Court Justice Alejandro de Moraes, who currently leads the superior electoral count, ruled that the plaintiff must present its full audit for both rounds of October's vote within 24 hours, or he would dismiss the claim. While election security experts consider electronic voting systems less secure than hand-marked paper ballots as they leave no auditable paper trail, domestic and international experts have never found evidence of fraud in Brazil's system. Thank you, Adam. Common Dreams gives us a left narrative on this story. Bolsonaro is replicating former U.S. President Trump's undemocratic and unsuccessful efforts to overturn the 2020 U.S. election, making good on his threats of not accepting a defeat. Bolsonaro and his party are litigating in bad faith and desperately trying to undermine Brazilian institutions. And Fox News has provided us with a right narrative. This challenge reflects widespread doubts in Brazil as the corrupt Lula is set to return to office after beating Bolsonaro by a narrow margin. Brazilian institutions are to blame for this distrust, as they have screened questions about both the electoral process and results. It's as if they were trying to hide something while failing to make the country's electoral system auditable. 
And we have another nerd narrative saying there's a 2% chance that Jair Bolsonaro will successfully stage a coup by January 2023. So you're saying there's a chance? No, I don't think so. There's, 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 there's a slight chance. <laughs> it's that a 2% chance. All right. All right. Alabama governor suspends executions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, The Daily Caller, The New York Times, and The Guardian. Alabama's Republican Governor Kay Ivey on Monday suspended executions in the state, asked State Attorney General Steve Marshall to withdraw motions seeking dates for the executions of two inmates, and requested for the State Department of Corrections to conduct a thorough review of the state's execution process. Ivy's decision comes days after the state abandoned its scheduled execution of Kenneth Eugene Smith, who was reportedly tied to the gurney for four hours while awaiting resolution of a delay over a stay. Despite concluding the disagreement, the state gave up after a further hour because of time constraints and an inability to find Smith's vein. Smith was the third failed execution in the state since 2018. Alabama was similarly unable to execute Alan Eugene Miller in September. The state completed an execution in July, but it was delayed by three hours, in part because of a faulty IV line. According to Dr. Leonidas G. Conieris, a professor with the Indiana School of Medicine, there are a wide variety of factors that can make accessing veins difficult, including a person's weight, previous drug use, and age. Marshall said through a spokesperson that he would comment on this matter at a later date. He didn't hint at whether he'd agree with Ivy's request. Thank you, Melissa. CNN has provided us with a left narrative. It's about time Alabama put a stop to the madness of these botched executions. It's certain that a review of the process is desperately needed to scrutinize these barbaric capital punishment practices but it won't mean much if the review isn't conducted by an independent entity rather than the Department of Corrections itself. And Fox News brings us a right narrative. There's no problem with how the Department of Corrections conducts its executions. It's the courts that are ruining the process. By interfering in the system in an attempt to protect the lives of convicted criminals, people are undermining justice and obstructing executions. Ivy should be confident that any problems do not lie within the Department of Corrections. And the nerds at the Pataculous Prediction community have a narrative for us on this story. There is a 50% chance that capital punishment will be legal in at least 41% of the U.S. states in 2035. And in our final story today, President Biden has extended the student loan repayment pause. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Time, Forbes, and The Conversation. On Tuesday, Biden announced that the student loan payment pause will be extended further while litigation against his student loan forgiveness program plays out. Student loans were expected to enter repayment in January 2023. Repayment will now begin either 60 days after the debt forgiveness program begins or after the litigation is resolved. Miguel Cordona, the Secretary of Education, explained the extension, saying it would be unfair to require loan borrowers to make payments toward a debt that may yet be forgiven. 
Following through on a campaign promise, the Biden administration rolled out the loan forgiveness program earlier this year. But days after the midterm elections, a federal judge in Texas ruled it unconstitutional. Last week, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in Missouri barred the program nationwide. Solicitor General Elizabeth Preloger has asked the Supreme Court to weigh in and vacate the nationwide injunction. In her filing, Preloger labeled it, quote, erroneous and claimed it leaves, quote, millions of economically vulnerable borrowers in limbo. Earlier this month, the Biden administration appealed the ruling, saying the HEROES Act of 2003 gives the Secretary of Education authority to forgive student loan debt. The Supreme Court has asked the plaintiffs to respond by Wednesday. The Supreme Court has the authority to reverse both rulings against the program. Thank you, Adam, for the facts on that final story. There's a Republican narrative provided today by Town Hall. Biden's loan forgiveness plan places an unfair burden on hardworking American taxpayers. Surely he can't believe it stands a chance of surviving the numerous lawsuits or the upcoming scrutiny it will get from a Republican-led House next year. Extending the pause is just a way to make it look like the president is doing all he can to keep the plan alive even if he promised he wouldn't extend the payback deadline the last time he pushed it back. And Alternet has written a democratic narrative. Student debt relief is still vital to strengthening the middle class. Republicans seemingly either want to keep their constituents in perennial debt or are afraid of giving Biden a win on this matter. Either way, their lawsuits are all baseless and this pause extension makes sense because people shouldn't be asked to pay down a debt that will be totally forgiven in the near future. And Newsweek provides a cynical narrative. Borrowers are rightly outraged at this political fight over debt relief, but they shouldn't be surprised, as neither party seems to want to lawfully make changes to the student loan industry. And regardless of how this current battle plays out, the nation will be right back at the same level of debt as soon as 2028. Instead of executive orders and rogue actions, solid, cohesive reform legislation are needed from Congress to prevent students from excessively borrowing in the first place. I still think they're barking up the wrong tree as far as like going after the, the, uh, the loans. They really need to get the cost of, of schooling down. Gosh, I remember when I went to college, it was so much different. Oh, yeah. And it, it just keeps going up. And I mean, I didn't go to college that long ago. It, it, it has changed dramatically, like in the last 20 to 30 years. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, November 24th, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topshire. Happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next time on Improve the News. Gobble, gobble, gobble!